Hello and welcome to the Very Casual Politics Podcast. I am your host Matt and today I'm joined by Aaron. Hello. And today we've got a little episode where we're going to discuss some of the events of the year 2016. It's just come to a close and we're going to have a look at some of the things that happened in the UK, obviously the Brexit vote, the US election of Donald Trump, and a wider events uh, such as the peace deal in Colombia and the Syrian civil war. So today we're going to go through 2016. I've come up with a few questions and I'm going to throw them at Matt and I'm going to try and answer them myself. And then later on we're going to give our predictions for 2017, which could either go really well or it could go really badly. But you can call us <laughs> up on that January next year when we host this. So to begin with, the first question I'm going to give to Matt and myself is what was the most important event of 2016, politically speaking? Okay. That's the, you, you, you're coming out with the big questions first, and I, I like this, Aaron. I think you've got, you, you're, you're the interviewer here. I can see you've uh, got a lot of experience bringing to the table. I mean, it's a boring answer, but obviously, it, at least in my view, the biggest event of 2016 is the election of Donald J. Trump. It's not actually caused any effects in 2016 particularly. There's been a few kind of domestic problems in the United States, but really nothing which will be thought about in even a year's time. It's really something that's going to affect the future, and that's really where Trump's effects will be. So for now, all I can say is, you know, it's that those states like Wisconsin and all those Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, going over to Trump, obviously Florida being important as well. That is, in my view, the biggest event in 2016, even though it didn't really do much in 2016. Was it the sheer shock of um, Trump winning? Did you see it coming? See it coming? I I started to kind of think it was more likely come sort of around July or August, probably. That was a sort of situation where some of the polls started to narrow then, and I really did think it was likely. I even actually made a, <laughs> I made a bet with you, Aaron, and I won it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I put money on the table. I think that, that's a sign I saw it likely. But also, I'd say importantly, come October, can come the presidential debates where Trump did not do very well. I really thought I'd lost that money. I thought I'd made a huge mistake. <laughs> so I do think that I didn't see it coming in the end because that was the point where actually he was getting more popular. And I thought he was losing because I thought normal politics still stayed. So yeah, part of it is the shock, but also it's just a huge shift. It's, you know, Obama was a pretty big shift in US foreign policy. And which is what is sort of the main concern for this um, podcast, really. And Trump will be an even larger shift, probably. Although, once again, you actually don't know what he's going to do. So I think that's part of the shock as well, is that for the next four years, probably, although you never know, but for the next four years, there's going to be a president who's completely different. And I think that's the biggest thing that you'll look back on and see in 2016, is that Trump. Yeah, uh, I, I, I can agree with you. I don't like how you brought up the bet. I usually win these sort of bets and it kind of hurt handing over that money to you. And it was a shock to my system that Trump won and then me having to pay you for it. But what was the bet again? Was it that Trump was going to win the presidency or was it Trump was going to win Florida? I can't quite remember. Trump would win the presidency. I think he had to win Florida anyway. Well, actually, I think now he didn't, but still. So, Aaron, what would you say you think was the most important event? Do you agree with me? Is it Trump or is there something else? See, I think there was two events that have affected me over 2016, and you know one think of, of what I can't think what the other event could be. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a British citizen. 
And so really, the American election is the only thing. Matt, you know, you know me too well to know that I was heartbroken when Brexit occurred. Um, it was It's quite a big shock to the system because I always thought Remain was going to win. I've kind of read all the polls, listened to all the experts, and it just shocked me to my core when Britain voted to leave the EU. I was I actually campaigned for the Remain side, and I'm not going to reveal which party I support, but I have always been on the losing side of an election or a referendum. So it was another loss that I lost to my heart and to my brain. <laughs> <laughs> so it was. I think it was a very important event because it's it was probably the start of sort of a populist year uh, across the world and Trump did use Brexit as a sort of template for what he did in America and it was just I don't know I always kind of describe how bad I felt on the on the 23rd of June I think you were there with me Matt actually and I think you you saw my reaction to it I turned into yeah, we were, an angry we were, person we were together on the night and yeah you weren't a particularly happy person right then but you yeah. got over it over you were over the next few days um, perhaps you're, well, you know, you're not really over it now, but you can still hear the rage in your voice. I'm a bitter person. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. <laughs> I'm just interested. I've heard the argument from some that in the end, yes, it may seem like a, a big event now, but, you know, you look at the markets and they haven't been particularly affected. Yes, the pounds become weaker, but that in many ways could be a short to medium term issue. And aren't we just changing our trading relationship with a trade organization? It doesn't seem that momentous. Oh, Matt, I have to tell you a lot about the EU. Uh, firstly, I I think it's it's just our posture uh, in terms of foreign policy. Where are where is Britain now? At the moment, I have no idea who our allies are and where we're going to go in terms of the future. If so you think it's more EU, it's, it's sending out a message rather than actually doing something important? Well, it's, you can also do something important within the EU. Uh, think about the amount of influence and power we had within the EU, and to just lose it because of one prime minister being very short-sighted in terms of his policies at an election, and then running a terrible campaign <laughs> to the ground, basically should not have, I don't know, it affected, what was it, 30 or 40 years of our foreign policy, just like that, overnight. And with Trump being elected, it also confounded the problems of Britain, because are we going to be... America's best friend, even with Trump being president, even though a lot of the citizens of Britain are quite reluctant to even be associated with with Trump. Uh, if you watch like Question Time or watch, uh, or if you look, if you look at the polls in YouGov, a lot of Brits do dislike Trump. And then we cannot now associate ourselves with the EU. So wh- where do we go then? Some would say that we should have some sort of Commonwealth alliance, but then are we not following the line that the e- that led to the formation of the EU? And would Commonwealth countries want to take part with us? I mean, I can't imagine India or Pakistan wanting to, or South Africa wanting to have some sort of free trade agreement with us. And I guess you get New Zealand, Australia, and Canada, but is that what, with a market of what is it, 700 million or 800 million people in the EU compared to the market of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand? That's a smaller market and it could hurt us in the future, but we'll see where it goes. And that's what 2017 is for and what we're going to predict <laughs> in the future. But I don't know. Okay. I feel like it's definitely something that will be remembered uh, for the coming decades is that vote. Okay, so, so you think it, re- it really has damaged the UK's relationship in the long term with Europe? Yeah, I think so. Okay. okay. All right, let's move on to the next section, a little bit more uh, happier, hopefully. What was your favourite moment of 2016, thinking about politics? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, obviously, but otherwise, this would be a different podcast. My 
favourite moment, it's a bit of a weird one, because it kind of took a long time to get there. But it came right at the end, actually, in December, when the uh, Colombian government ratified the peace deal. Obviously, it seems like a strange one, because there was the referendum early in the year, which rejected the peace deal. And that seemed like just taking away what could have been a really bright beacon for the year of 2016, and something really good to remember 2016 for. But yeah, in the end, despite the referendum, lots of changes were made to the initial deal, which voters had rejected um, in October. And the Parliament of Colombia and the government of Colombia has formally ratified the deal. So as obviously it takes time to put forward, and there's lots of issues that will keep on causing problems with it, and there'll be Colombian elections, and that could lead to um, parties being elected who might want to have a harsher line on former uh, members of the FARC rebel group. But I think, overall, I think it's actually a very, very positive thing. You know, Colombia's had a terrible, terrible civil war for decades. I've actually been to Colombia myself, and I know that, you know, it's still a very militarised country because people are afraid, and rightly so, that there's the military there to protect them from these groups. And so I think it's nice that Colombia can start to move towards peace. It's something that happens in a lot of South American countries. They, a lot of them have had very long civil wars in the past. And then once there's been peace, things have got better. So I think there is a, that's probably a moment I'd describe as the most positive for me, politically. Okay. Right. Why, what's, so what would you say is your best moment? I think, I can't think for um, you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've actually become a bit of a sadist, actually, because Having just slagged off Brexit and the referendum, <laughs> I okay. really quite thoroughly enjoyed looking back on it. The chaos that Brexit caused to the political system in the following weeks that occurred after the vote. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I really, really, thinking back on it, I really enjoyed how the Prime Minister resigned almost instantaneously. That triggered a leadership election amongst the, the mm-hmm. Conservative Party, the governing party of the UK. Yeah. And you'd think, all right, the opposition would then be on top form to exploit this division. But then you had Jeremy Corbyn, who's the leader of the Labour Party and the opposition. He was he had his entire shadow cabinet resign en masse. I don't know the numbers, but I think it was like about 90, was it 90 or 80 percent of them resigned in the following days after Brexit. Huge numbers. And they, and they were doing it on the hour. Perfect yeah. timing. One actually did it live on TV on um, the Daily Politics show. Exactly, and it was it was if, if you love politics, that was the best time to watch politics unfold because hour by hour you had leadership contenders coming up for the Conservative Party to become the new Prime Minister. You had backstabbing within the Conservative Party as well. I mean, <laughs> the reason why we the the no, the Leave side won was because they had this charismatic figure in Boris Johnson. Whether you like him or not, he definitely affected the vote. And yes, very very charismatic, was, very affecting. Yeah, and. Um, and the reason he was on the Leave side, uh, he didn't necessarily believe in the Leave ideology, but he saw it as a, as a chance to become Prime Minister. And just as he was about to announce his leadership candidacy, his best friend, the person that was with him throughout the Leave campaign and he thought was going to be his strong ally, Michael Gove, announced his candidacy two or three hours in advance. And thus, Boris Johnson gave up his dream of being Prime Minister. And it's just that sort of drama was brilliant and excellent to watch. I don't think we're ever going to see anything like that in our lifetime again, where the two part, two political parties are just tearing each other apart. And I forgot to add on that with the Labour Party, with all their shadow cabinet resignations, a leadership um, election was then forced upon Jeremy Corbyn, and 
he won eventually, but there was so much strife between the two two main political parties that I enjoyed watching it, and it was great TV. I don't know what your opinion is of that whole two whole fortnight of chaos, but I, <laughs> I mean, really enjoyed yeah. it. <laughs> it it definitely, like you said, with the uh, Labour Party leadership contest, and it spread over longer than a fortnight in the end. But I I, I know what you mean. There was that immediate effect of of chaos. I actually I know what you mean from a kind of just being a political junkie point of view. It was just really fascinating and really interesting. And you're right, I think we might not have that for a while. Because I always find like an interesting litmus test of how much news there is. Is just for UK listeners, if you just look at the BBC News app, they always have the same sort of number of what they describe as top stories or most read stories. And so every day they're filling these. But sometimes in the middle of summer or a low point in a cold winter's day, the news stories will just be really inconsequential things that really don't matter and they're just trying to fill it because they've got to. But I remember the day after the referendum result, the top story was Britain votes to leave the EU. And then the second less important headline was, oh, the Prime Minister resigned, by the way. <laughs> uh, which I just thought was, oh, that guy's been Prime Minister for six years. Oh, he's resigning. Oh, I didn't. Oh, second. Let's put that. That's not the leading thing on the headline. And it was the same with the 10 o'clock news and on oh, oh, a six o'clock news or whatever, depending on whichever new channel it was. It was the prime minister resigning. Oh, that's a secondary matter. And yeah, you're right. It, it was such a such a busy time. I remember I was visiting a, a friend in London on the just a, what seemed like a normal day, nothing special. And I was just had a bit of time to kill before I was meeting with them, and they were a bit delayed. So I was just hanging around. I'm in Westminster, and then it was announced that um, in the Conservative leadership contest that Andrea Leadsom was dropping out, and so I popped by to see Theresa May's sort of acceptance speech yeah <laughs> so <laughs> yeah because it was just like it was just one of those things that would never usually happen but it was just a situation where like you said there was this fortnight where so much was happening so i could just just suddenly looked at the phone which is my phone and just saw the news and just like oh, okay that's happening that's a bit quick but okay the prime minister is going to change in the next few days and just i think that for me that was just indicative of that entire period which is how quickly things are changing the evening papers on that day were already wrong about the big news stories, <laughs> things yeah. had already changed. It was just a really, really fast period of time. So yeah, I from a sort of observer's point of view. So I guess especially the any uh, listeners not from the United Kingdom, they probably looked at the UK and thought, what is going on? If yeah, they were I, following U- UK news, do you think we should give them a, a, for people that are not part of the UK or just didn't happen to be turning on their TV in the UK? Um, do you want to give them a little timeline of what happened there? Because I could, go, I think if you go through it, what happened was we had the referendum result, we uh, leave one. So then you had David Cameron, the Prime Minister who supported Remain, resigning instantly, uh, yeah. I think the morning before. Then that triggered it off a set of Conservative leadership elections where five candidates stood. Then MPs in that, in that party selected it down to two candidates after yeah. you had the Boris Johnson backstab. And then Michael Gove, the person that did backstab Boris Johnson, he lost out and came third, so he wasn't in the final two. So yes, then uh, it was between Theresa May, who eventually won, and Andrea Leadsom, who was a bit of a nobody beforehand, but she was a prominent Leave campaigner, so it had been kind of pushed to the fore. And after Boris Johnson and Michael Gove dropped out, who were also prominent in the Leave campaign, she then kind of took on that mantle of leading the leaders. You're forgetting the the fact that Andrea Leadsom, right? She was she was a nobody, and no offense to her, she's still kind of a nobody anyway right now. But in her leadership campaign, the, she she tried to build up her own publicity by having an Andrea Leadsom march. So she got a few MPs that supported her, 
a few of her supporters, and they marched around Westminster shouting out uh, Andrea Ledson slogans. <laughs> and the media was just following this, absolutely bemused. And that was not what killed her campaign. In the end, she w- went and did an interview for the Times newspaper, and she said that she would be a better leader than Theresa May because she has children, and that's what sunk her campaign, and she had to resign. And that led to Theresa May becoming Prime Minister theoretically unelected because it didn't go, the ballot papers never went to the Conservative members. And that was just a Conservative chain of events, which was a fortnight. And I, as I mentioned earlier, the Labour Party was imploding at that stage along their campaign with shadow ministers still probably resigning when Theresa May was, was uh, taking the crown as Prime Minister. Any non-UK or non-aware listeners, I'll just give a quick rundown of the events in the other major parties. So the Conservatives, sorry if I'm being simplistic to any listeners, but the Conservatives are generally the sort of the right, right-wing party in the United Kingdom. And then the Labour Party is generally the left-wing party. And then it's a, generally works as a two-party system, but there's also a third party called the Liberal Democrats who are in the middle. And then there's also a Nationalist Party for Scotland in the North and the SNP. And then there's a few much smaller parties like the Greens. But generally speaking, you've kind of got uh, sort of three or four parties most of the time. Don't forget UKIP as well, the fourth party who are very anti-European and they kind of, their rise triggered David Cameron having to call a, a referendum. So sorry, yes. I, still, cause I just didn't... Yes, yeah, 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 UKIP are very important, unfortunately, because depending on your view, due to the electoral system, they are not very well represented in Parliament. So they only actually have one seat, only one MP out of, that's one out of 650, whereas... Yeah, you know, for example, the Conservatives as a majority have so around three hundred thirty. So you can see, and yeah, you can see the sort of difference in terms of you could have about got about fourteen percent of the vote last time. Conservatives got so like thirty-seven, but that difference is quite important. So yeah, those are the major parties, and so the Conservatives had their own sort of kind of crisis, got sorted after two weeks. The Labour Party had an issue because the current leader of the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn, who came in after the 2015 election, when the leader who lost then, Ed Miliband, resigns. Jeremy Corbyn won that election, and he's seen as a move to a sort of more left-wing side of the Labour Party than has been leading the Labour Party since a few decades, really. And so he was always disliked by his MPs, but liked by the party membership. And there were sort of grumbles from within the party, and murmurs of discontent, because he didn't campaign particularly hard in some people's view for the remain side and so that was the sort of casus belly for his mps to rebel against him they all resigned on mass cause leadership contest eventually this candidate called owen smith stood against jeremy corbyn and then the eventually i think in september the vote came through and owen smith lost and so jeremy corbyn is still the leader of the labor party so that actual leadership contest didn't lead to any change whereas david cameron did stop being prime minister replaced by Theresa May. I think in the other parties there wasn't too much, you know, you could um, eventually stay the same, different leader, but not much change. And there were Democrats, not too much change either. Well, I don't know. You say that about UKIP, but <laughs> the UKIP leader, Nigel Farage, surprisingly also resigned. I don't know whether it was within that fortnight or not, but it was definitely a month after the referendum, or two months after the yes, referendum. but more like a victorious wrote... retirement. Yeah. That sort of retor- notorious retirement. And then a new leader was, was um, well, elected. And I think her name was Diane James. And she resigned after, oh, was it two weeks? I think it was two weeks after she was actually elected. And that must, I think that's the shortest leadership term of any political party leader in the history of UK. And maybe 
even the world. And that triggered off another set of leadership elections for UKIP. And before the election candidates were even revealed, one of the key candidates, uh, Steve Wolfe, he was in European Parliament at a UKIP uh, member of European Parliament meeting. They were discussing the fact that there would be a newspaper story about Stephen Wolfe perhaps defecting to the Conservatives. And one thing led to another. And in the end, he was punched by one of the other UKIP members of European Parliament. And he, he took the hit, fell on the ground, and he seemed all right. And then within a few hours, he was hospitalised due, due to internal brain injuries. And Yeah, he seemed to suffer him... from some sort of concussion or something a bit more serious that can happen, you know, if you, if you um, had a bit of trauma or been hit, something like that. So he had, yeah, he was in hospital for a while. I think he's actually left the party now. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess if something like that happens, it's very, very sad. And it is, it is, it is a shame that something like that happens in a, a democratic institution. And yeah. then there was, so yeah, he, he went, he was kind of a favourite. And so he was out the running. But in the end, it's, I mean, we could go in, in depth, really, on UKIP party policy, but we don't want to bore our international listeners. But in the oh, end, yes. it ended up with someone called Paul Nuttall in charge, who um, hopes to take a lot of seats for UKIP, despite them having won. So that would be interesting to see in the future what UKIP becomes, because they have, for all intents and purposes, achieved their goal, because it's the United Kingdom Independence Party, the independence being independence from the European Union. So as long as the UK leaves the European Union, because yes, the vote happened, but it actually hasn't left yet. It needs to go through a few bureaucratic procedures to properly leave, if it actually so if it does, if it doesn't leave, then obviously the UKIP party has a reason to exist. But if it does leave, it'll be interesting to see what happens to UKIP. But yeah, like I said, going back to why it's my favourite moment is because we spent I don't know how how many minutes discussing this, but we still didn't even cover too it many. in depth. We didn't, yeah, too many. We we didn't cover it in depth because there were just so many things that happened in that fortnight, or that happened because of that fortnight, and it made UK politics definitely a lot more interesting. Going back to favourite moments, though, I asked the same question to my sister. She's sort of politically engaged. She's uh, she kind of liked the US election, so she kind of just followed that. And okay. she became enamoured with this this old chap known as Bernie Sanders. And her favourite moment was, I don't know whether you've seen this, Matt, but I hope you have, was when Bernie Sanders was doing a rally in Washington State. And mm-hmm. a bird just appears out of nowhere and goes onto the podium with Bernie Sanders, and she absolutely loves that moment because I don't know that that bird just staring at Bernie Sanders for a good twenty or thirty seconds, and then Bernie Sanders just absolutely bemused by it, looking quite old and <laughs> old and quite cute, in as what she said, <laughs> and and that was her favorite moment of of twenty sixteen. And I don't know, I don't know. That, let's just end that with a happier note like that that sort of vision. <laughs> So that bird did nothing to help Bernie Sanders's well leadership challenge. Have you seen it, by the way, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I saw. I was probably half listening to you then because I've just pulled it up now, and yeah, it's really interesting. He's in the rally, and the bird's just kind of landed there. U.S. election rallies, people kind of are all sitting behind the um, candidate, behind, and so you can see him in the camera. And everyone's obviously stood up, looked at the screen they can see, and looking at the bird which is landing there. And not too, they're all really quite enthusiastic about this bird. It seemed like they didn't really care about what he was saying, but then this bird turns up, and they're all yeah. going crazy for it. Listeners can look up this video on uh, the popular video-sharing website YouTube. <laughs> Other providers are available. But, yeah, it's quite interesting. 
quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I thought I'd just give you what my sister said, because seeing as I thought that was quite a good, interesting choice, actually. Sorry, yeah. I haven't asked any family members for their opinion. Oh. I have nothing to bring. Matt, do you not care about the, the institution that is the family? <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how to answer that. <laughs> uh, I guess that was the point. Anyway, okay. um, hit me with your next go. question. Your, All right, uh, you've got loads. I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Well, I've got four more, so <laughs> let's okay. go through it. Okay. Right, what was the saddest moment of 2016 for you? Okay, um, that's a yeah, pretty pretty good question. Saddest moment? Well, there's, unfortunately, there's actually a lot to be sad about in 2016, as as in many years, though. But in terms of, you know, politically watching news coverage, I'd say the, the crisis in Aleppo has really been something very sad. I think in many ways, because there's a certain sense of powerlessness, really, and everyone's part, you know, it's it's Russian and Iranian and Syrian forces against rebel forces, which involve a lot of jihadists as well. And we talked about it a lot in the first episode, so I won't go into into too much depth. But I think everyone just knows the, the humanitarian crisis that happened there, the um, hundreds of thousands of people who were trapped in the city All right. um, for so long, and the uh, massacres that occurred as the city was being taken. So I think. Obviously, yeah. Like I said, it won't go into too much detail because we discussed it last week. But yeah, for me, I'd say probably the saddest moment, although obviously it took place over many months. Okay. So what, would, me, it, what would it be for you? All oh, right. Uh, for, for me, it's quite funny because my saddest moment is actually the Colombian referendum, which you kind of referred to your favourite moment of 2016. So that that was quite a funny, funny one, actually, because I find the referendum quite sad in a way. It kind of epitomises why I'm sort of against uh, a referendum in general. Not just because of Brexit. Because you hate democracy. <laughs> I don't hate democracy. I just don't like direct democracy. So you, so you hate Switzerland? I don't hate Switzerland. I like their chocolate, actually. But I just don't like direct democracy. I just feel like there's too much populism involved and generally the actual proposal in the referendum is often ignored because of other factors. But this Colombian referendum was just something different because it was a referendum about a peace deal. So if you rejected it, at the time, the the Colombian government was basically saying, if you reject this, it's just continuation of war. So that referendum result, where they voted against the peace proposal, was essentially a referendum for war. And what was even sadder was that the areas that were involved in the civil war with the FARC rebels actually voted en masse for the peace deal. But the areas that were further away from the FARC rebels and had not been touched by the Civil War were the places where they also voted against the peace still. And coupled with the fact that there was also a tropical storm that happened to be on election day, which hampered, well, which hit the region which was affected by the FARC rebels, that was what caused the referendum result to go against the peace still. And I just thought it was a bit sad. And it's, I don't know, it's just kind of epitomised why we shouldn't really have referendums in general. I don't know, what's your opinion on, on the referendum? Obviously, you, you you like how there is a peace deal being formed right now, and obviously that might be a factor on why they, people voted against the peace deal, but I just imagine it being pretty much the same terms. Um, well, yeah, obviously, I was happy about the deal being accepted, so yeah, I was sad when the referendum failed. But I do also think, and I'm aware that the people who rejected it really thought about justice being important and that they thought the FARC rebels had done a lot of bad things, you know, but the people who rejected the, re- the deal really thought that the FARC rebels were being given too good a deal. A lot of them were being allowed sort of guaranteed places in the legislature, 
and a lot of, and I don't think there was going to be any recriminations or any sort of judicial process to make them accountable for their crimes. But yes, I was also disappointed with the result and I understand how someone like, you know, you could say that yes, this is kind of a vote for war and is also sad, obviously, the areas most affected by the civil war and by the FARC rebels were the areas that wanted peace the most. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> bit of a sad note really <laughs> let's, let's carry it but, on though. but there's oh. the positive ending because you were sad about that but the deals happen now so hopefully that deal will stay and there can be reconciliation and peace in Colombia well fingers crossed for 2017 then I'd say alright so the next question is how do you think 2016 will be remembered by future historians so thinking about I don't know a decade or two decades time when Matt you're writing your novel on 2016 the book what would it what would it be titled and what would it be about oh as uh, listeners should know that i am a uh, history student so i have a deep interest in how historians view things for purely selfish and boring reasons you're saying a decade two decades i think there's a point to be made things aren't really set in their effects for a very long time for example my favorite kind of example of this sort of way of thinking is when President Richard Nixon, the USA, was formulating his detente in the Cold War with China so that basically China would become better friends with the USA and that would cause problems in the Soviet Union. And Nixon was kind of trying to woo China a lot. So he was meeting with the leaders of China and met with Zhao Enlai, who's, who was the Chinese premier in the 70s, at least the early 70s. And during a conversation they were having, Zhao Enlai was asked, I think, potentially by Henry Kissinger, that Zhao Enlai was asked, what do you think the impact of the French Revolution was? And Zhao Enlai said, oh, it's too soon to tell. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's just a kind of really good thing to think about, is that even some, you know, even in, they were thinking really quite a long time after the French Revolution, it, almost 200 years, you can't really tell. And so yeah, I think 2016, in a decade, two decades time, it will either be seen as representative of at least medium to long-term trends of populism, if you know, this is getting into a bit of predictions for next year, but if next year sees more far-right candidates in European elections being elected to positions of power, if Trump perhaps gets a second term and does some really quite radical stuff and strong alliance with Russia and really changes up the nature of global politics, then. 2016 will be seen as really the start of that process. But also it could be just a kind of another boring year and not being seen as doing that much, you know, if not much happens. I'm sorry that's a kind of cop-out answer, but you can't really tell until the future happens what its effects will be. 2016 could easily be something, you know, not necessarily in 1989, not even in 1968. It could just be a sort of precursor to events that no one really thinks about in the future. Well, Matt, that is such a cop out answer. This do you want like? A, do you want a better answer? You... <laughs> I'm just going, going back to the Brexit referendum. Michael Gove, when answering, well, when being asked questions about why uh, about experts and their opinions, he said people have had enough of experts. That is why. That is why people are had enough of experts. <laughs> people like you, <laughs> you historians. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a historian, I'm a history student, so I'm not uh. published. But I'm sorry, <laughs> anyway. but any, any good historian would tell you 
<laughs> something's going to happen. All right, well, going back to the question, how 2016 will be remembered in future decades, I'm going to give a more definite answer than my colleague Matt here and say I think it's the year where we felt the financial crisis of 2008 and 2007. Because if you haven't noticed, it's the year where essentially the the working class or the, or the struggling middle class, or they're just about managing, have spoken up and voted the way that, well, they've become politically disillusioned to a level where they're voting for anyone that can bring about change. So with Brexit, you saw, despite many economic figures and even mainstream politicians telling the people that it's a big risk to leave the European Union and it will hurt them financially. As Michael Gove said, people had enough of experts and they voted for Brexit regardless because they wanted something to change because they've voted for politicians since the crash and they've done absolutely nothing to help or improve their lives. Perhaps they've even gone worse. And you saw that again with Trump in America. It was the white working class vote of Wisconsin, of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yes, thank you, Matt. Elected Donald Trump. It wasn't the. It, it wasn't. Any, it was those states that have been struggling since 2009 that had voted for Trump. I mean, if you think about Detroit. That's in Michigan. That was a city that was deeply known to be financially bankrupt, and the car industry had been affected by the crash. And that was a that was a state, a key state that Donald Trump won because he told, gave a message of change of actually speaking up to those voters and challenging China by creating protection measures. And the people loved that sort of rhetoric, and they voted for him. And Hillary was a continuation candidate, and she lost, because they don't see any change, and they think their lives will not improve. But with Trump, yes, he can, he can ruin their lives, but he can also improve their lives, and people are willing to take the risk. And I think the, the financial crisis was well, 2007-2008, so that was eight years ago. There's only now a lot of these countries, these Western countries, are starting to feel the the crisis. It's the stagnation. I remember reading an article during the U.S. elections where I think it's the American middle class have not had wage increases in about a decade or so, and I think it's those people that were fed up that want some sort of change. They've now spoken up, and that was this is their year, so to speak. What the long long lasting effects of it will Do- be? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think, I mean, would you be saying that if, let me phrase this, okay. Do you think you'd be saying that if the votes had gone the other way? Because we're talking about a relatively small number of voters causing a change. So, for example, you're saying this working class sort of fight back politically is except, is changing the, the Brexit result. But if, say, there'd been higher turnout in places like Scotland or London, which were strong remain, and that could have push the Remain vote over to the UK's voting to stay? Or if, say, there was higher turnout in the USA in certain states, or even just a small change in a few hundred thousand votes could have changed it to Hillary Clinton? And do you think you'd still be saying this if it had just been a few hundred thousand votes here or there across the world, which isn't a lot in the grand scheme of these very large electorates? Would you still be saying that this was the kind of year of their fight back and feeling the effects of the financial crisis oh, that's, that's a tough question matt but i'd i'd say 2016 would then be viewed as a sort of tipping point sort of motion you're right they were very marginal i mean donald trump did lose the popular vote with brexit it was what was it, a swing of 900,000 votes would have 
been enough to flip it over to a Remain victory. But you've got to ask the question, despite the mainstream media or a mainstream politicians throwing a lot of stuff at, at the, the electorate about how their lives would be dramatically hit if Trump was elected or if Brexit occurred, the people just weren't willing to hear it at all. I mean, the EU, if it's providing so much economically, and I believe it does provide a lot economically, but a lot of people just don't feel it or they don't feel like they're getting anything from the EU. But if the fact that 51% of people voted to leave does indicate that they're fed up with the status quo, so to speak, even if they, even if Remain had won and it had been 51-49, but with Remain winning, it's still, we could still say 2016 was a near tipping point where populism almost did it. And with Trump, we, we had sexism, we had racism, we had we well we had him trying to do a book ban on Muslims, him flip flopping on any sort of policy, and the list goes on. He alienated almost every part of society other than the white working class vote, and yet he still won. If he'd lost few electoral votes, we'd still be talking about how did Donald Trump get so close to winning the presidency? And I think that it it could have been twenty sixteen could have easily been the year that it nearly was for populism rather than the year that populism actually okay. succeeded. Okay, so it would be. Trump and Brexit would be seen a bit like the Austrian presidential election was a kind of, oh, how did it get that close? And would be still notable because it got so close. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in Austria, we had, so we had a runoff election where the Green candidate, basically a far right, almost neo Nazi, uh, fighting out for the presidency of Austria. And the first round of it, well, they had one, the first election, it was, what was it, 16? 16,000 votes separated the two. It was very marginal, like 0.09% separated the vote or 0.9% of the vote yeah. se- separated it. And it was really marginal. And then it had a rerun because it was so marginal and the Green candidate won by a few percentage points. But yeah, you're right. It was it nearly was. And I think in Austria, that's the same sort of feeling is there that we just about got away with it. And yeah, 2016 could have easily have gone like Austria, but... Sassara, that's that's fate, and it's been that's how the election was won. Okay, now I just wanted to delve into your opinions, Aaron. That's all. Oh, just find out my inner workings. Why don't you? Yeah. Okay. Do you have any other questions? All right. Or are you all out? Oh, two more. So, which leader I'll do try. you think did worst um, across 2016? In in terms of any leader domestically and in terms of foreign policy. All right. Well, we could do it through a foreign policy scope, or we could just say how how they just didn't have a good year. But it has to be a national leader. How about that? I think that would be a more fairer measurement. Um, okay, can I just take a really easy one? Go ahead. We've already discussed it, so that's that's why it's going to be quick. But David Cameron, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, in my view, had a pretty terrible year okay. because he gambled everything on this referendum. And it really was a case of when he lost it, he did kind of have to go. It would be odd for the person who campaigned so strongly to remain, to be leading the UK out of the EU. But he and just, I mean, his years probably got better since June, quite frankly. Don't know what his new job is yet, actually. But that's irrelevant, really. But yeah, he gambled so much in this referendum, and it's forever going to be his political epitaph. It's just, that is the end of his political career. And all his successes for the Conservative Party will just be forgotten, because he will be but for better or for worse, depending on what happens with leaving the EU, if it goes well, he'll be seen as a bit of an idiot who did a kind of accidentally good thing. And if it goes badly, he'll be blamed for leaving the EU. 
So yeah, I'd say David Cameron. All right. Uh, I could, I can agree with you. He was a very short-sighted sort of prime minister. I'm sure we'll discuss him in future podcasts. I, I'd yeah. go going through the same sort of logic with you. I'd go with Renzi from Italy, the Italian, more well, the former Italian prime minister. Yeah. I don't know. 2016 was a year where young leaders of countries decided to risk it all in a referendum because Renzi did the same sort of thing. But to be fair to him, he he won it. Well, Italy is known for its very unstable governments and its inability to make decisions. So he tried to reform the upper house of the Italian legislature body and he put it to a referendum and he staked his entire political career on this referendum in a very similar manner to David Cameron. He was up against it. It was kind of 50-50. But in the end, he lost and he had to resign. And he was a very, I thought he was a pretty good Prime Minister, he did pretty well for Italy, but he re- he's created instability in Italy to the point where another set of elections might occur and, and very sort of right-wing parties could possibly win and ones that are very anti-European and he's created jeopardy. And his his year, he started off being one of the most popular, I think he won in a landslide when he got into power and started off as a very popular charismatic young leader and just to throw that all away in, in such a stupid referendum was not worth it and I think he'll look back and regret it. Okay. So Yeah, um, no, I can I can I can definitely agree with that that Renzi didn't have the best year. I think it's important to note that despite the year going badly for plenty of leaders, it really goes the worst for the ones who are no longer in power. <laughs> it's very true. Okay, alright, so the last question I'm gonna ask you, Matt, about twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Which leader do you think succeeded the most? So using the same criteria as the last questions, so both domestically but also in terms of foreign policy as well. I would suggest probably another easy answer here. Uh, President Vladimir Putin of the Russian Federation has had a particularly successful year. Mainly in terms of foreign policy, but right now his kind of general domestic policy seems to be have a good foreign policy and that will placate people because they'll be far too interested in all our foreign adventures and foreign successes, a kind of a jingoism that used to get a lot with what European empires of the 19th and 20th century. And that seems to be his main sort of domestic front in that regard. So yeah, his foreign policy obviously spoke about things we really spoke about in the first episode, actually. Aleppo and the Russian involvement in Syria continued to be a success. And then, of course, the Russian hacking of bodies to do with the US election. I think are the two most important things. Also, there seems to be a kind of growing friendship with Turkey. We've always been a kind of power on the southern flank of Russia, and ever since Turkey joined NATO, it's been a bit of a problem having Turkey there for Russia. For example, the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in the 60s was all really to do with how Turkey was allied with the USA and had US nuclear weapons in Turkey right next to Russia. So, yeah, I think Vladimir Putin really has had a very very successful year. And he potentially, depending on how you view how well Donald Trump did based on Russian potential assistance or not, potentially, you know, Vladimir Putin now has a strong ally in the USA. Frank of mind was Putin, but I went for a more controversial choice because I just feel Ooh, like it. Good. Um, I went with Angela Merkel because I'd say okay. after, after, the, after what 
possibly looked like a bad 2015 for her with the, well, the fallout from the, her refugee policy uh, mm-hmm. lowering her opinion poll rating and it, I think it kind of fell into January and February for her as well and maybe you can still say the terror attacks as well for her but she's her poll rating if you look at it is ridiculously good to the point okay. that she's still very popular and I think she's polling at the levels that she won the the last general election in Germany and yeah. bear this in mind that she became leader about a decade ago and I don't yeah, know she's been around for a while she's yeah she's been around for a long while I think all right yeah so bear in mind that she became chancellor of Germany in 2005 so that's okay that's 12 years of yeah 12 years of leadership and I cannot think of any world in the leader who's kept their popularity rating so high after 12 years in power I, in the UK has has anyone got 12 years of power in the UK Matt? Consecutively, the last person I could think who got near that, I'm probably going to be super wrong here, but I think, no, not Thatcher, wait, Aaron, let me think, what one sec, Thatcher's 70-90. Um, I think it might be Thatcher. Prime Minister, Prime Minister Salisbury, potentially. Alright, but he didn't probably have to, Salisbury didn't probably have to deal with the regular opinion polls and a, a strong opposition, so to do, to, and also probably an well, actual we, big uh, electorate as well. We can go into the great Prime Minister Salisbury of the late 19th century and a different episode. Yeah. But I would say he had a lot to deal with. He had a lot of problems. And the electorate was actually getting bigger as he was Prime Minister. Oh, bloody Salisbury apologist, as always. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to... Yeah, but in, in the modern era, it's unheard of for someone to be in power for 12 years, still maintain their popularity rating. Going into the next general election in 2017... It on full cylinders, likely to be in government. Obviously, this could go wrong. I mean, this, you know, anything can happen. 2017 follows the 2016 form. But at the moment, I think she's had a fairly good year. Also, to finish off the year, her economic growth figures came in, and I think she got 1.9%, which is quite a big, that's quite a big economic growth, and it's kind of her on par with many of the, well, ahead of a lot of the G7 countries. So when okay. they say Germany's stagnating, she's she's starting to show signs of some economic competence to um to compete with the others as well. And we'll see what happened to her in twenty seventeen, but I think she's had a, a very good twenty sixteen despite the headline figures of terrorism and, and refugees. Aaron, sorry, did you say it was twelve years she's been in power? Yeah, two thousand and five. Okay. Okay, I've just got a list up of Prime Ministers by tenure, just to see was was I right? And so yeah, I've got Salisbury was thirteen years, two hundred and fifty two days. And you're right, Thatcher didn't quite make it. She was eleven years, but only two hundred and nine days. So yeah, not even the long serving and very popular and very important Margaret Thatcher made it to twelve years. So yeah, that's pretty impressive for Angela Merkel. Yeah, I think I think Roosevelt would be the only other comparison I think of that that's done something like that because Roosevelt had three terms, right? Before death uh, yeah. got him. So, yeah, she, she's probably at the Roosevelt of our time, <laughs> if you think about it, in terms of world leaders and their status. Yeah, that is quite interesting. Impressive. I mean, you don't think about that when you think about Merkel, but she's just a pair of safe hands, and that's how a lot of the electorate view her. Okay, okay. Well, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't, expect, I didn't expect that answer, so I like it. No. Well, I'm always there for the left-field answers. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that completes... All my questions about 2016 and just reviewing the year in general. But if you have any more questions that you want us to answer or you've got any feedback to give us 
or just like to talk to us, just send us an email. It's verycasualpolitics at gmail.com. Please send us all your really angry responses to everything we've said. We're very happy to read through all the stuff that you hate about us and how annoying our voices are and how Aaron is very wrong about his views on the EU. I'm very interested to read that. I'm right, goddammit. <laughs> okay, exactly. If you want to stop him being so self-assured, please send us feedback. We're very happy to have some. And maybe we'll even uh, read out what you say on a future episode if you say something particularly insightful or interesting that sparks a good debate. Okay, and thank you for listening today. Okay, um, I've been your host, Matt. And I've been your co-host, Aaron. And we've been the Very Casual Politics Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.